You're listening to In Network, Nordic's podcast series where we explore healthcare and technology with experts from around the globe. Hello, and welcome to the In Network podcast feature, Designing for Health. I'm Nordic's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Craig Joseph. And I'm Nordic's Head of Thought Leadership, Dr. Jerome Pagani. We recently chatted with Dr. Matthew Sakamoto, virtual physician and a CMIO at Sutter Health. Dr. Sakamoto discusses with us digital empathy, primary care informatics, embracing the inbox, and the importance of collaborative team-based care. He also describes what he thinks primary care will look like in five to 10 years, how AI will play into the future of medicine, and how health systems can compete with new micro-efficient services. Let's plug in. Well, welcome, Matt, to the podcast. We like having you here. Very, very excited. Uh, long-time listener, I guess, first-time caller. So this is, this is going to be great. Terrific. So, you know, I'd like to start off by um, just summarizing your background and, and how you got to where you are. I think our listeners find that interesting. And so I believe you told me the story was that when you were about 11 years old, you heard some epic analysts talking about whether they were going to go to UGM or XGM. And you thought that sounded like a great conversation. You wanted to learn more. And ever since then, that was the direction of your life. Now, did I get that? Was that 100% on or was I a little off on, on that? Off by a few years, but definitely having that idea of an epic analyst close to my heart. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe, that, maybe I was wrong. So, um, so how did you end up where you're, where you're at? I think for me, it ended up being a lot of full circle things. Um, definitely wanted to do research as a career initially, then realized that I am not good in the lab, um, should not be allowed anywhere near mice or pipettes. Did a research uh, fellowship and realized I like hanging out with the doctors a lot more. So it kind of went from what's the research side of things and the biomedical engineering side of things to what does uh, direct patient care look like? Then I kind of realized as I went through medical school, uh, residency, and I think a lot of engineers think this way is like, there's so much inefficiency, just an insane amount of inefficiency that drove me nuts. And I was like, there has to be a better way. Um, so I got in, I, I always jokingly, but not so jokingly say that I got into the informatics world by complaining a lot. And I think that's how a lot of people get in there. So I said, why are we having to do so much manual chart review? Like so many clicks, this, this all seems inefficient. There has to be a better way. And they said, you should talk to the informatics people. So that was me during medical school was uh, complaining a lot and then learning how to complain constructively. For the record, I just want to note that Matt said that research was harder than practicing medicine. I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say. Sometimes our, our uh, dear listeners, sometimes our interviewees get confused. And um, we'll go back and talk about mice at, at a later time. So, so, Matt, you trained to be an internal medicine specialist. And I think the idea was that you were going to, um, you know, go work at a clinic somewhere and see patients and they, they would come to your office. And um, that has apparently not uh, what happened. Uh, things changed because of uh, this pandemic thing or for other reasons. And, and uh, the majority of the, of the patients you see, or at least a lot of it, is uh, virtual care. How did it you know, how is your life today different than what you thought it was going to be at the end of your residency? Oh, very different. Yes and no. So actually during medical school, I guess going back to a little bit of the personal journey is every, I, I knew I wanted to do internal medicine, primary care that, or something that involved that long-term relationship with patients. So that was already baked in from pre-med to medical school time. But every primary care doc that I worked with and shadowed, the happiest ones always had some sort of like side gig. It could be either like expert witness things. Uh, medical director at a, at a uh, skilled nursing facility, things like that. So like, I was like, 
I even knew, I think in medical school that I was not going to be a hundred percent time clinician. I just wasn't sure what that split time would be. Um, and then again, through my constructive complaining, I, I, I realized that, that informatics would kind of be that, um, that, that half and half time, but definitely I think, uh, Telehealth wasn't quite on my radar. I think I was always interested in how do you provide care beyond the clinic walls. To me, that was more like population health management. How do you do outreach to patients, you know, kind of more spreadsheet-based top health outreach. And then I realized probably during clinical informatics fellowship that, oh, there's this thing called telehealth. Um, and people were doing it like a little bit. Um, and I did fellowship from 2018 to 2020. So on the back end of fellowship, obviously telehealth blew up. Um, so I was doing a lot of work setting up clinics, designing clinics, um, designing, redesigning workflows, basically for how do you kind of take uh, what used to be an in-person thing um, and train and implement and make things work virtually. So definitely caught, caught and rode that wave from a virtual care standpoint. And then now I currently do basically 80% uh, work from home uh, with a telehealth and virtual care-based panel. And then I still go into clinic one day a week to see patients and also see, see, see the team, the, the, the care team, because that's also very important to me. All right. Well, so a, a, a different experience, but not that different, uh, because you're you're still seeing patients. You're still, um, you know, solving problems. What do you do if you can't solve a problem? What do you do if someone asks about something that you know you really need to do a physical exam on them, or um, you, you think that they might need some some further care you can't provide from your bedroom? Yeah, and as additional background, so I've worked at a couple of different. Um, virtual only practices previously. My current um, role and system is I'm part of an integrated delivery network. So I have colleagues um, that I can send people to multiple clinics, multiple places to send patients to. So I think that's one tenant I always come in with is like always have a backup plan, right? If you're putting in a central line, if it doesn't work out, what's your plan A, your plan B? So when you're starting a telehealth visit, you should probably have an idea of if this is beyond the scope of what you can do. Where are you sending patients directly to? Um, and I think that's, again, practicing in this uh, integrated delivery network is a lot easier um, because there's that both trust in me sending patients to my colleagues and then just the patient in general. They're like, oh, yeah, you're part of the system. I can picture where you're going to send me to versus when I was on some third party um, telehealth companies. It's like, mm, I'm in California. You're in Alabama. You should go to your nearest urgent care in Alabama, wherever that might be. Um, so just being able to direct specifics to patients, um, just that trust piece is, is, is huge. Matt, you've used the term digital empathy in some of your work. Um, what does that mean? How do you apply that in your day to day? Yeah, for me, it's all about connection. Like I mentioned before, like I think I had a uh, initially a, a research minded career. And then now I think what drew me to medicine was that, that, that patient connection, that being able to have that longitudinal relationship. So when I started doing a lot of telehealth, I realized how do you maintain that connection, this idea of kind of therapeutic touch, therapeutic relationship when you've never met the person before or you're, you're, you're not going to be in the same room with them? So I realized that was an interesting thing and a new skill set that I, that I was building. And I was talking with other telehealth colleagues as well that saying like, oh, yeah, we have to learn how to do like a virtual physical exam. But also, how do you again virtually connect with a patient? Secondarily, the, there's so many things that we can't do. I can't listen to a patient's heart. I can't listen to a patient's lungs. I can't push on a patient's belly. So there's so much trust that gets built in the patient as well. So building that trust quickly um, to do a lot of patient reported um, symptoms and, and, and vital signs is also tantamount to when, when, when you're starting to do virtual care. So I realized that was a, it was a skill that needed to be built up. And for me, it's mostly learning through trial and error, probably more error than, um, than successes, but slowly getting better. 
there's been a lot of buzz around the interpretation of a recent study that um, ChatGPT is said to be more empathetic than most doctors. So what do you make of that study um, that seems to have showed that patients preferred the messaging coming from a large language model uh, to the messaging that comes directly from the doctors? Yeah. I'm glad that they did the study. Lots of caveats. So I think, um, so to, to put uh, more specifics around it, the study was based off of responses to like a Reddit thread. So there's a difference between what, how do people respond in a public forum and how do people respond um, in a one-to-one relationship with, with their doctor. So this one was based on how physicians responded or clinicians responded to patient questions, again, in a public forum versus how chat GPT or a large language model would uh, respond to that. So again, how you respond, again, is different in a one-to-one relationship versus um, with patients. The one other thing, um, if I remember correctly from the study, is that it, the length of the response actually was correlated with higher empathy. So is that better, worse? Not really sure. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's slight apples and oranges to like how would a patient and their primary care physician respond back and forth in a private message. So we, we've talked a to a lot of folks about um, the role AI will play in medicine in the future. And, and it seems like this is a great example of how it might be extensive of what doctors are already doing. Somebody else has, has pointed out commenting on, on that study that, you know, yeah, if I had uh, an unlimited amount of time or, or even enough time, I could draft a very empathetic message, but I'm literally responding to get through this giant you know, list of messages as quickly as I can. Do you think that this is an area where it can and actually be an assistive function to doctors and help them be able to do more with higher quality than they're able to do just given time constraints? Oh, 100%. And I think that's actually where, again, it's this whole idea of machine versus human versus machine plus human, right? So I think having that augmented turn of phrase, I think is actually super helpful. I'm going to go on a, qu- a quick aside here, but I think this, this does tie in, is I've actually started to use... Um, either ChatGPT or Bard or some of these other ones to improve just my email messaging with colleagues. So I'll say like, here's my draft, Bard, take a, take a crack at this and like, please make this more professional. So there's small little things where it's, I'm actually learning uh, from the machine learning to kind of say like, this is, you can soften this phrase here, or you can turn this statement into a question. So at least for me, I've actually kind of worked that in. And I think that 100% is, is analogous to if a, a clinician is messaging with a patient and saying like, hey, if you phrase the lab result as not clinically worrisome versus normal, that might help improve you know, the, the patient's um, reception to that. So I think there is a learning curve that can happen in parallel, um, but you really have to have human in the loop. I think that's actually the biggest one is let's, 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 let's play with the tools, but let's keep human in the loop for various reasons. Yeah, you know, one one aspect of of empathy that wasn't in that study, but um, I, I read about it was a it was a uh, handout, a kind of a patient or parent handout for a for a child who was diagnosed uh, with new onset diabetes mellitus, and uh, they let the LLM take a take a stab at the at the instructions and 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 focus on the on the child, right? So you have to use the right language in, in the in the right way and. Uh, I've certainly had these conversations as a pediatrician. I'm not a, an endocrinologist, but you know, at a, at a higher level. And there was a line that the um, that the AI put in, uh, again directed right to the patient using uh, age specific language. Said something along the lines of, "You may think that um, you may worry that this is your fault that you got this disease because of something that you did, but nothing could be further from the truth." Uh, and 
I, I was kind of like taken aback by that because that is not something that I would have thought to say to a young child. Now, again, it might be that that's a very common thought and the pediatric endocrinologists that are listening are rolling their eyes and saying, of course you would say that. But I wouldn't have thought to say that. And that that was a that was an eye opening experience for me, and I think that kind of just leads on, you know, adds on to what you were saying about, hey, teach me, teach me, O A I. Are there things that I could say better, or, um, you know, are are there concerns that the patient's not asking me, but um, uh, they probably have, and if I could just uh, short circuit that that uh, concern right now, I could make things a lot better. No, totally. I think there's levels of being inspired. I think, right? So it's inspired in some of that creativity part. I've actually used a lot of chat GPT things less for taking over work and kind of being like, hey, I have this big idea. Actually, a, a, lot, of, a lot of blog titles, I, I will admit, I, I, I will feed through and have that be there. So there's this idea of like this creativity, this spark piece, not just like, can you generate something that I will copy, paste and use? And that's funny because everything I write is uh, done by an LLM. Uh, I just say, hey, can you write something smart? And it, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty good. Most people say it's better than what I've done by myself. So I'm excited about that. All right, Matt, uh, you recently led a panel at AMIA uh, focusing on primary care informatics. Um, I was there. I was in the audience. It was great. I have just a few questions about it. Uh, first of all, um, what is primary care informatics? What the heck is that? I mean, it's hard enough to define what informatics is, right? And then primary care uh, (laughs) informatics. So it's everything and nothing all at once. I think for me, the primary care informatics is, again, how do we just improve patient care and clinician wellness through both better workflow design and or the tools that we use? So I keep it necessarily broad, mostly because it also provides me with more job opportunities, Um, but also keeping it broad. I think there's so much, again, primary care covers a large swath of of medicine. And then obviously informatics also has um, everything from designing software to putting that software into a workflow that multiple people are part of. So for me, that encompasses all of those pieces. Yeah, that's uh, great. Primary care is, uh, is, uh, uh, something and, and nothing all at the same time. And, uh, um, it's, I've seen it either, you know, written as the uh, key to our future or completely irrelevant. And, uh, I think somewhere, uh, in between, uh, speaking as a primary care doc, uh, I, somewhere in between is, is probably the right answer. Um, well, so at this, at this primary care informatics panel, you had a, you, you were talking with a professor uh, who talked about implementation science. And th- I was fascinated by this term. I had never heard implementation science, uh, or at least uh, not long before that. Uh, what do you think is implementation? What, what is that? How do we, how do we leverage that? Uh, in, in the past, it was just, hey, I got to implement this uh, new technology, or I have to implement a new workflow. And we just did it. And apparently, there's science now. Is that, is that true? Did I get that right? Oh, totally. And like I said, I will uh, do a shout out to Teresa Wulunas, who was a professor there. So she was one of like my first mentors into clinical informatics. So I think that's a lot of things where I realize that it's not just the technology. So it's the ability to do both design the technology, but that technology adoption piece is so important, right? You, you know, if you build it, they, they won't come like you have to sell it. You have to like make sure it works, make sure it works into workflow. So all of those ways of thinking about that, that's that's definitely inspired by her. And she continues to lead, lead in that field. So yeah, implementation science, I think it's one of those things where there are different ways, different theories of how people adopt things, how people use things, how you can kind of seed adoption with one group and have that inspire another group. Um, So all of these things, I think there's a science of, again, delivery 
that is super important. Um, and I, I continue to learn uh, from her in, in, in that field. Matt, I think when most people think about their doctor, they're thinking about a primary care doctor, somebody who establishes a relationship with them over time and helps kind of guide them through their health journey, right? What do you think primary care is going to be like five to 10 years from now? And are you designing workflows and systems that's going to help bridge from where we are today to, to sort of what that future state looks like? Yeah, I think the my model, I'll, I'll credit them, Zev Newworth for this, is this idea of primary care as a coordinating platform. So right now, <laughs> to um, Craig's earlier point, primary care is kind of a dumping ground of like, hmm, you're discharged from the hospital, follow up with your primary care um, provider in three to seven days. Or, oh, you need a referral to something, check with your primary care provider. Um, so I think right now it's sort of this uh, black box or you know, amorphous dumping ground of things. So this idea of a coordinating platform is, can you appropriately have an easier entry for patients, but also say like, hey, sounds like you need um, behavioral health therapy. Here's, a, you know, here's an app for that, right? So it's some digital therapeutics, some ways that like, they can assist with that. So the patients still have a single place that they can go to, but it's not the primary care physician themselves that are having to do a one-to-one directing where that's happening. There's a whole team. So I think that's the idea of a co- primary care as a coordinating platform that includes both people and the technology tools to do it. And then the difference between my doctor versus my care team. Um, so for myself, I guess we can transition to this a little bit. My current setup is I work with myself, a nurse practitioner, and a medical assistant. And at any given time, we are all working together to respond to patient concerns and patient messages. So I think that shift to my care team, primary care as a coordinating platform, are two big things that, one, will ease the burden on the individual clinicians. But then two, also like greatly improve access and kind of speed of answering for patients. And I think both of those, I don't think it'll, it'll fragment care too much. That's what people are worried about most. But I think if it's done thoughtfully, um, and again, with kind of patient-centeredness um, in mind, I don't think it'll, it'll fragment care. Let's pull on that thread for a second, because you, you, you're kind of describing the way you practice primary care as a team sport. So who's on your team and how do you divide up the work amongst yourselves? Yeah, it, it, it flows. And I, I, one thing I'll highlight is that we call ourselves a pod. And I think that that's truly there. There are some places that have team-based care, but it's in layers. So things go through the um, patient navigator layer, and then it maybe makes it to the nurse layer, and then it makes it up to the clinician layer. Ours, we're jumping in and out and kind of blurring that line where we're more verticalized. So the, the team as it stands now is a, myself as an internal medicine physician. There's a nurse practitioner as well as a um, medical assistant. Those are kind of the core team members. And then we have access to either a social worker or a registered dietitian for some of this health coaching, lifestyle change, lifestyle management, uh, things that we do. So it's, but it's a team that the patient knows the names of all four, you know, three or four members of the team. I think that part's really important for that continuity um, and to decrease that fragmentation piece that I was uh, mentioning before. So let me pull even more uh, on that thread. Can, so Matt, I'm going to, I'm going to pin you down. So if I'm your patient or your, your team's patient, I'm going to send a message uh, to, I presume, probably you uh, or the, the nurse practitioner, whoever's name I can find. And then, you know, how does that get addressed? Maybe it's a, it's a med refill question. Maybe it's, a, hey, I think I know I need to go see a, a specialist. Do you need to see me first kind of question? Um, how have you successfully managed to kind of make that Make that work. And are there, before I let you answer that question, um, are there uh, um, 
policies and procedures that the mothership kind of looks over and, and wants to make sure that you're following. I, uh, I'm quite older than you. And when I started practicing medicine, um, there was no mothership. And so I, I was it. And anything that I wanted to happen happened in my office. And um, so, you know, I certainly had, I'll, I'll just give you an example. As a pediatrician, I often got a phone call from a very worried parent that they left amoxicillin, liquid amoxicillin out overnight. And, uh, you know, you're supposed to refrigerate that and it's kind of goes bad after leaving it out. And so, uh, my policy was, Hey, I don't even want to hear about that. This is amoxicillin call in. This is long before e-prescribing, uh, just call in the prescription, uh, for another, just call in another prescription, you know, write it down on a little message pad and I'll sign it at the end of the day, but please don't ask me if it's okay. So are you allowed to do those kinds of things to, to get stuff done? And, um, and if so, how have you not been arrested yet? Oh, I know. This, this, this is recorded, right? We are not <laughs> recording. This is just between you and me. No one else will hear this. No, we, we actually uh, do play by the rules for the most part. I think the term we use a lot is tee it up for me, right? So there are things that at the end of the day, the physician or, or clinician is ultimately responsible for signing um, and things are in or out of scope for different members of the team. But we're, we're always checking with our legal team. But I mean, the, the difference between me having to type in, you know, computerized order entry for liquid amoxicillin um, versus having the MA have it there for me to sign. I mean, would it be great if she could just sign it and send it? Yes. Um, but having it there and me looking at it saying like, yep, that's the right dose sign from a speed of, again, speed of the patient getting what they need standpoint. And then my mental sanity standpoint is above and beyond, again, what the um, current state is for most, most traditional primary care. All right. So if I, if I decide that I need to see a cardiologist, where does that go to? Does that go to, you, to the NP or does that go to you or is it just who's, who's there that day? Yeah. So that's kind of that's one way that we actually do a little bit of trickle up things where certain things we have standard like reflex questions, basically. So um, I guess for direct referrals, less of a less of an issue. But if so, I'll, I'll change it a little bit. If a patient comes in with a, some kind of acute complaint, cough, we have we're on Epic, an Epic dot phrase that um, my MA already knows like if if this symptom send the patient this question. So, you know, that's within scope. That's sort of a protocol that they can follow. So by the time that it, it bubbles up to me, I have a sense of like, okay, like, you know, they answered like the usual five top five questions that I, I would ask anyway. And I'm able to kind of take that next step. And this is all without me having to be in, in the loop. So that's, again, one of those things where it's, it's not like the MA is going to be sending in amoxicillin or azithromycin prescriptions, but they're able to kind of take those first steps or first three steps. Um, that I would have had to kind of do and cognitively think about. Um, so there's sort of by protocol, we're gathering more information for patients. And you always work with the same nurse practitioner and the same MA. Is that the case? Yeah, that continuity is key. Um, I, I've seen places, and you can probably blur the lines a little bit, maybe like one physician to two APPs, um, you know, advanced practice uh, providers. But I wouldn't do those ratios any bigger than like three or five, because then at that point, you kind of start to lose that fidelity and that everyone has an individual practice style. I think that that helps preserve both because we do so many handoffs, you know, for, for any kind of message that goes through. So like being able to almost, it, it is like a team sport anticipating where someone, you know, might be on the basketball court. So you can kind of pass them the ball or something, a football analogy. Um, but being able to anticipate your teammates um, next move, I think is so important. And again, to kind of provide this seamless communication with the patient, I think it, it is super important. 
Yeah, one of the things that uh, Jerome and I talk about a lot is uh, is design and, and human centered design, and and I certainly we think about how the screen should look and you know what color should the alert be, but something as simple as uh, maintaining continuity for your team is huge, and and I think you just you know uh, emphasized it that that. Um, you know, that ability to know the questions I'm going to ask before I ask them. And it's not rocket science. It just takes time. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm amazed when we talk about medical assistants. These are generally folks with minimal or, or, or no formal training. Um, I had a medical assistant that worked with me for uh, five years, and, and she had been doing it long before I, I started practicing. And um, uh, I would sometimes laugh. Again, this is all on paper. But, I, you know, I would walk into an exam room. And I would say that uh, Cheryl has already diagnosed your child with croup. And how do I know that? Cheryl didn't say anything to me, but she did put a croup handout, one of the you know handouts that we had. There's a croup handout paperclip to your chart, which gives me a sense of what she thinks is going to happen here. And I said, but don't worry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double check and make sure I agree. She's only right about 95% of the time, and, um, which was true. Uh, and so, you know, again, she was able to to very quickly kind of pick up on on where I'm going to go and 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 could predict what I needed before I before I had to ask for it and there's only one way you get there and that's through uh, doing it over and over again and it's not as efficient from an operation standpoint to have the same MA work with the same uh, group it's it's often much easier to have people cross trained and you just go wherever you're needed that day but boy oh boy it's a totally different experience um for for the patient and for the uh, clinicians i think and craig i want to kind of pull on one level deeper is like i love what you did with your MA in terms of you built trust in your care team right that goes back to the patient saying i want to see my doctor versus i trust my care team by kind of um, saying like, yeah, like she's part of the team. She's, you know, she's, she's thinking ahead. She's, she's helping me out. That builds that trust for that next time that the patient calls in and says like, I don't want to talk to the, the MA. I want to talk to the doctor. And it's like, mm, let's be honest. The MA, the MA will be able to help you far more <laughs> than I will be able to help you at this moment. You know, Matt, that's, um, I, I would love to take credit for that. I, I, you're, you're absolutely right. And I absolutely did not even think about that. Um, you know, I started practicing in the late nineties and we weren't at least uh, where I was, no one was talking about team-based approaches. Um, but you're, you're a hundred percent right. I, it sounds like I accidentally engendered that, uh, because uh, Cheryl also was often the person who answered the phone. Um, and she did get back to, uh, people, you know, uh, if they called and, um, oftentimes, you know, via protocols that we never wrote down, but she knew, you know, there were certain things I need to see. You know, he's pulling at his ear like we're, ne we're never, ever calling in medicine for that. I need to I need to see that uh, while well, he's got a, you know, a red rash and it's just like Johnny over here and uh, he got fever and it sure sounds like roseola. And if he's otherwise, well, we don't really need to see it. You know, she would do those kinds of triaging. And and um, it sounds like in my brilliance, uh, accidental brilliance, I uh, I encourage that. But that's a that's a great point. And I think we need to be more thoughtful and, you know, direct about helping people, helping our, our patients to kind of learn to trust uh, the, the folks around us if they can. But again, if this is someone who's I've, who I've never met or I've worked with three times in the last year, I, I, I can't give that person my trust and, and clearly neither can my patient. Matt, one of your mottos is uh, embrace the inbox. So what do you mean by that? And how have you avoided being absolutely pummeled by your colleagues when you show up at conferences? 
<laughs> I know it's it's, it's I, I I like to be spicy every so often, but I think for me it goes back to the whole team base. It's true team based care, which we've then virtualized. And the main reason why we've done that is actually the amount of patient lives you can touch per day grows exponentially once you virtualize it. Because even if you're doing telephone calls, even if you're doing video visits, that's one to one time that you're spending with the patient, which I love, and that's definitely builds relationships, but. If I'm titrating your blood pressure medicine or if I'm titrating your SSRI, I kind of just need to know, like, how you're doing. Are there any side effects? And we can go up, up, down or keep it the same. So that embracing the inbox piece, one, I think just better for patient care, better for patient access. And it's more fun when, when, it's, when it's a team sport. Again, the learning curve was like a little bit tough when you, I'll admit, there were times where like both myself and the nurse practitioner double messaged the patient. <laughs> Luckily, it was the same answer. But like, we kind of learned that like, okay, how do you... Um, turn the in-basket into a team sport, but then that's when it's fun. Like that's when you learn how to pass the ball, how to anticipate each other's movements. And there's a little piece of almost going back to medical school for me, right? Like you're, you're kind of relearning new steps, ways to ask questions, ways to take a history. Um, so there's a little bit of that exploration piece that I think that I also find fun. Oh, I will say the one other reason that allows me to do this well is that my current structure is that all of my patients are value-based in some way, shape, or form. So either a commercial HMO, Medicare Advantage, Medicare Shared Savings, things like that. So none of my incentives are let's try to put as many video visits back to back to back as possible. So that allows me time to think, learn, and play in the in-basket. So that's the other reason is I get to live in a fantasy world that a lot of people don't. Um, but that that has really allowed, I think, like that growth um, that I've felt. And then I think and I'll obviously try to give back and um, teach at least those learnings. So the inbox is a great example of a pain point for both patients and physicians, right? And so a lot of people feel like this moved the needle for patients and put a lot of burden on on the physician side. And, you know, we, we always use the analogy, it's like somebody smoothed the wall on one side and it looks all great, but if you just stick your head around, you can see the brick is sticking out on the other side. So, you know, aside from incentive structure and sort of this team-based approach, which, you, which you've already mentioned, are there other principles that you would think would apply to helping make that wall smooth on both sides? Yeah, I think a lot of it is going back to that digital empathy thing is like, can we build patient empathy for what the doctor's feeling on the other end, right? Or what the clinicians are feeling. Um, and again, there's a great post, uh, I think it was Death by Patient Portal um, out, out in JAMA. That was amazing. And so what, what uh, briefly, uh, what this uh, physician did was he actually sent a mass message to all of his patients saying like, hey, I'm getting crushed by like the amount of um, messages that are coming in just so you know um i'm getting you know hundreds of, of messages and it's really hard um and i'm also seeing patients all day and really kind of put himself out there and what that did was like i think patients just don't realize so it's sort of that that, that empathy building understanding what it's like on the other side of that wall so he kind of he, he showed he showed the 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 um the pointy bits and i think that that resonated uh, one really well with his patients but I think the amazing thing, and this is kind of the cool part, I guess, about the electronic health record is all of his colleagues kind of saw that outgoing message too. And they're like, oh, wow, like he did this. And like, this is so they, they kind of, it's, it sparked that conversation and decreased kind of that isolation piece that um, you know, happens in the in-basket. I guess actually taking it one step further, kind of, kind of the idea that I like it because it's a team sport. In-basket time is very isolating because you're usually doing it either at home or like on your lunch breaks. I think that's also part of it too, is like, is there a way to make that more collaborative. But yeah, so I think by him exposing the, the pointy bits, that, that, that really generated a ton of empathy um, from, from the patient side. 
when I read that article, uh, that editorial, um, I, I kind of was shocked that he would do that. And then um, shocked that I, I didn't think about that myself because it was it was a brilliant uh, idea. And I don't think he he um, intended for it to have any positive effects. He's just like, I got to tell you, patient panel, um, you're killing me over here. And uh, I want to take care of you, but we we need to figure something out together. Um, and it, it, it kind of reminds me, I was in a, a two doctor practice for much of my professional career, just, just two of us. And, um, you know, I talked to some, uh, uh, dad in the middle of the night about something and, um, he'd brought the child in the next day to, to be seen. And I walk in and he, <laughs> and maybe this was a dad thing versus a mom thing, but he said to me, what are you doing here? And I, I said, well, I, I, I work here, you know, uh, this is, this is my office. He said, yeah, I know, but I, I talked to you in the, at three o'clock this morning. And I'm like, yeah, I remember. Uh, I know. And he's like, oh, but I, I assumed that if you were, you know, talking to people in the middle of the night, you weren't working the next day. And I was like, well, that's a great practice. Like, how do I do that? That would be awesome. Um, so I, I think, you know, that I, I think with that one parent that I did probably get fewer fewer um unnecessary you know the, the newer parents don't know what's necessary what's unnecessary but at least i got the you know the respect of that dad and um i think that's what he may not have been going for but the author it got that and uh people are still going to call you because it's appropriate for them to call you in the middle of the night they're still going to message you via the patient portal because that's still appropriate for them to do but at least to be understanding that you are you do have an, another job and you're still maintaining you know seeing patients virtually and in, and in person and and that's something important so matt you've you've been practicing long enough that you've you've seen or actually maybe even used uh, uh paper charts with binders or is this just something that you saw when you were an undergrad in the history of medicine class that you took? Nope. Uh, uh, during my internal medicine training, um, I was there was a binder. You would hand we would handwrite orders. I'm not that old, but like we were just at a hospital that that hadn't fully adopted <laughs> an electronic health record yet. So I've done I've I've done you know transcriptions. Transcriptions would get printed out, put in put in the binders, um, turn the little knob, put it put it at the nurses' station. So. Yes, I have. I have seen the the, the era of uh, paper charts. So those those paper charts um, often had uh, different sections in them, and um, I think you you and I were talking once, and you noted that uh, they almost all had a cardiology tab, um, but they they maybe didn't have a nephrology tab or an endocrinology tab, uh, but they they always had you know certain core parts. And and when we started moving from paper to the electronic world, we often just said, well, it works there. Might as well work here. Um, so I, I, I ask you, are there parts of the electronic health record uh, or the way we practice medicine now in the U.S. that you, you say, well, this doesn't make any sense. I, I, would, I would design this differently. How, I, I, it's, a, it's an open question. And I'll give you 30 seconds to answer. Yeah, my biggest one, I think, is going to be on the virtual care side of things, right? That's like, how, did, how do we take clinic visit with a waiting room and a rooming process and all of these things and turn it on into a Zoom call? I think there's ways to just virtualize that, right? So I think, again, I have a largely uh, message-based practice and sometimes we do video visits, but you can have this back and forth. It can happen over the course of multiple days. And then if you need to, you flip it into a video visit. So rather than trying to recreate a brick and mortar office experience, which like no one loves um, with waiting rooms and everything else, and then trying to put it uh, in a virtual context versus saying like, what are we actually trying to do here? What are the things that we're trying to um, accomplish just for strictly patient care? 
And how can we accomplish that without, again, having to recreate all of those steps of traditional brick and mortar rooming process? I have to say that I loved the traditional uh, way with the uh, office. People came and uh, they waited for me and uh, it was a great world, Matt. I'm not sure what's wrong with you, but uh, yeah, that makes sense. Matt, you live um, in Silicon Valley or at least close enough that you wouldn't have to turn the page on one of the old Rand McNally street atlases. Uh, there are a lot of startups and, and even some non-traditional health entrants that are identifying micro-efficiencies, so parts of healthcare delivery that they can optimize and and deliver for less cost to the consumer. Um, And these kind of services, these micro-efficient services are beginning to disintermediate traditional health systems. And and those those sets of services are things they rely on for revenue stream. So what are your thoughts about how health systems can compete? And and frankly, should they be even competing with those uh, new entrants? Ooh, good question. And I, that, it goes both to some care fragmentation as well, right? If you're going to siphon off bits of care, how, how does that um, integrate in? I don't know. I, I think I can take the like, everyone can play nicely um, <laughs> approach. So at a certain point, there are so many inefficiencies in medicine. Um, and and I, I do some you know, health tech startups, uh, health tech startup advising. I tell everybody, it's like, even if there's someone doing the same thing in your space, healthcare is so broken, like, go for it, do it. There are so many things that need fixing, but always think about how do you maintain the interoperability? Like, don't duplicate work. So I think that's the thing where I think there's enough to go around. Um, and again, there's enough inefficiency to go around. So I, I mean, I highly encourage like the smaller groups and like people working in, in these different things, because I think once you're outside of the big systems, you get the, you, you look at it with fresh eyes, right? You're not trying to recreate a fee for service billing stream that forces people back into the office. You're thinking differently about it. So. I'll take the Pollyanna view that both can, it's, it's a both and answer. Yeah, both and with the caveat that what we're thinking about is that the interoperability problem has been solved so that it, it reduces risks for, on the physician and patient side and also ensures that you're not getting duplicated efforts. Well, Matt, at the end of the podcast, we like to ask everybody uh, this question, which is, can you give us an example, uh, two or three examples of Things that are so well designed that they, and they could be outside of healthcare, but they're so well designed that they bring you joy to interact with. Yep. I have my three things. So for those that don't know, I love eating and cooking. Um, So these are going to be definitely outside of the realm of healthcare. Underrated thing is the garlic press. Single use tool, only used to mince garlic. And I thought, I don't need this. Like I I have a knife. I have, I have a cutting board. If I need to do a piece of garlic, fine. It's, it's a Rincon garlic press. Um, it has one presses the garlic well, two easy to clean, and so for both of those reasons. And there was a time where I was like, oh, if I have to do like three garlic cloves, I'll, I'll, I'll only bring out the tool then. Now, if, even if it's just one, pull it out, do it, crush the garlic, um, and then and then wash the tool. So yeah, the wait, Rincon wait, there, garlic press totally worth it. There are people that only use one garlic clove. I mean, is it someone from <laughs> the Italian heritage? This is insanity. This is insanity. <laughs> Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, like I said, so and so that's that's one of those things where it's like it was a tool that seemed so simple that I thought I didn't need it, and then now it it, it gets used daily. Let's see the one other one. Actually, um, I'm not sure what the level of design is, but some. But uh, I will say. So we were talking about this before we started the podcast. My dog that was barking is definitely something that is designed to bring joy. Uh, she is a 17 pound cavapoo, this little white thing, but it is the levels of 
interaction, the way that she looks at you, the way that she endears herself to you. Um, that was like actually when when you first uh, asked the question to me, that was the first thing that popped into my mind was like, actually, this dog is like built for uh, bringing joy. Wow. We uh, yeah, we've 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 um, I, I wasn't as surprised by the garlic press as I was by the dog, um, <laughs> but it makes complete sense. Well, that's great, Matt. Thank you so much. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you today, and um, you know, learning about uh, how we, how you are trying to design a better healthcare system, and uh, both for you and for the the patients that that you serve, and and your colleagues uh, uh, all around Silicon Valley and in the rest of the country. I, I think Silicon Valley is like fifty percent of the country, and then there's the other parts. So, uh, thanks uh, for joining us, and uh, uh, keep on keeping on. Thank you both. It's had a great time. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check back for more episodes of Designing for Health wherever you listen to podcasts or on nordicglobal.com. Till next time, we'll see you in network. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. This helps others find the podcast as well. 